Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, the tension between the United States and China gets thicker by the moment. Hong Kong, Huawei, the Uyghurs, all major points of contention. Will this become a new Cold War? I will talk first to the Chinese ambassador to Washington, Sui Tankai, then to the former Deputy Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Then, a big fire at a port, an explosion at a nuclear site, a major chlorine leak. What in the world is going on in Iran? We will get to the bottom of this mystery. Also, empty streets and sidewalks around the world, billions of people confined to their homes. What has this pandemic done to the world and to humanity? I will talk to the French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy. And finally, from questioning President Obama's place of birth to declaring dead people were voting for Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump's conspiracy theories are the subject of my new special airing Monday night at 9 p.m. I will give you a sneak preview. But first, here's my take. With the pandemic overshadowing everything, one can sometimes forget there is a presidential campaign going on. That helps to explain why the media paid so little attention over the past two weeks when Joe Biden released his plans to fight climate change and revive the economy. The climate change plan is ambitious and forward thinking, but more interesting is the economic plan, which promises to, quote, ensure the future is made in all of America, unquote. That sounds like an America first agenda. And sure enough, President Trump accused Biden of stealing his ideas. But in fact, while the plan is politically clever in moving directly onto Trump's turf of economic nationalism, it is much better than the president's approach. First and most important is what the plan does not do. It is not a mercantilist call for tariffs and trade wars, the hallmarks of the Trump presidency. These Trump policies have failed by any measure. The evidence is so clear that when Biden released a fiery ad saying that Trump lost the trade war with China, PolitiFact's only quibble with that claim was that it should have been in the present tense, losing. They pointed to the following studies from 2019 a Federal Reserve report that determined the tariffs have not boosted manufacturing employment or output, even as they have increased producer prices. A Moody's analysis finding that the trade war had cost the United States 300,000 jobs. And a Federal Reserve study assessing the cost of these tariffs to the average American household as about $800 per year per household, wiping out the gains from the Trump tax cut. Oxford Economics estimated that the trade wars shaved 0.3% off American GDP growth last year. The Biden plan's boldest idea is to massively ramp up investment in research and development. Biden proposes raising spending by $300 billion over four years, which represents a 60% increase over 2018 spending. 
If enacted, this would reverse the steady decline in federal investment in science and technology since its heyday in the 1950s and 60s. Those investments led to the personal computer, the internet, the global positioning system, and a host of other technologies that have transformed the economy. More recently, it's worth remembering an energy department loan of $465 million is what enabled Tesla to establish itself and experiment with electric cars. The Biden plan proposes investments in 5G technology, electric cars, lightweight materials, and artificial intelligence. Some of this money will be wasted, as also happens to investments from venture capital firms. But all you need is for some, like Tesla, to succeed big. The plan also has a $400 billion buy American component. The theory behind this is sensible. The danger of this kind of approach, however, is it can too often become industrial policy, with the government trying to revive bygone industries like steel, as Biden apparently wants to do. And it often favors firms with the best lobbyists, not the best ideas. More generally, the track record of most rich countries in practicing this kind of industrial policy has been pretty bad. Experts used to point to Japan as the country that had mastered government-directed investment, except that it turned out Japan's best companies all came out of its fiercely competitive private sector. The state-sponsored ones mostly did poorly. China is different, by the way, because its biggest advantage is not smart government investments, but low wages. The best model is not for the government to set up or subsidize specific companies or industries, but to let the market know it will buy certain kinds of innovative products, which then gives the private sector an incentive to produce them. For example, as late as 1962, the United States government was responsible for purchasing 100% of all semiconductor chips produced in the country, which is what allowed that nascent industry to become viable. Similarly, NASA orders powerfully helped the computer industry in the 1960s. Biden rightly wants to emulate this approach to support today's breakthrough technologies, though it's worth pointing out key agencies in the federal government in those days, in the 50s and 60s, were much more efficient and operated with far greater insulation from special interests and lobbyists. One final caution. Buy American has been around for a long time. In fact, it was initiated in 1933 on the last day of Herbert Hoover's term in office, responding to a Buy British plan announced in London. The result of these kind of moves sent the world into a downward spiral of protectionism and nationalism, impoverishing ordinary people and creating a dangerous international climate. Let's keep that history in mind as we implement this next version of Buy American. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. It has been a dizzying week in relations between the United States and China. On Monday, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that the U.S. rejects most of China's claims over the South China Sea. That same day, China announced it was sanctioning three prominent Republicans for interfering in China's internal affairs. On Tuesday, President Trump issued an executive order removing favored status for Hong Kong. On Wednesday, the New York Times was first to report that the White House is considering a broad ban on members of the Chinese Communist Party from coming to the U.S. On Thursday, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs accused the U.S. of oppressing and bullying China. 
And that is just some of the tit-for-tat going on between the two countries. I am joined now by China's ambassador to the United States, Sui Tiantai, for an exclusive yeah. interview. Ambassador Sui, pleasure to have you on, sir. Well, good morning. So nice to talk to you again. Um, let me ask you a, a, a broad question first, which is when I watch the debate uh, that is taking place in Washington, what I notice is that on both sides of the, part of the spectrum, Republicans and Democrats, there is a feeling, and they, and they are making this argument, that they face a new China uh, under Xi Jinping, and in particular in recent years, a China that has become more assertive, more expansionist, and more repressive. Um, and this will require a very different American response uh, than the, than the previous, previous policy of many decades. How do you react to that? Why do you think this is happening? Well, you see, I think that people have to fully recognize the realities of today's world. Actually, the Chinese civilization has been there for about 5,000 years, much longer than the United States. And there is a strong continuity for the Chinese civilization. And there's ongoing efforts by the Chinese people to modernize our own country. This has never changed, whether in the last 70 years or in the last seven years. This is a continuing process. And we certainly have the legitimate right to build our country into a modernized, strong, prosperous country, like every other country in the world. I think the fundamental question for the United States is very simple. Is the United States ready or willing to live with another country with a very different culture, very different political and economic system, whether the United States is ready to live with it in peace and cooperate on so many and still growing global challenges? I think this is a real choice. This is a fundamental choice people have to make. In the South China Seas, you saw Mike Pompeo's statement. Uh, but of course, uh, you also have had an international uh, ruling that what China is doing in the South China Seas is a violation of international law. Will China change course and accept that it has, in fact, been violating international law in terms of its activities in the South China Seas? Let me tell you this. That ruling was a unilateral action. We rejected it from the very beginning. We don't think this is the right thing to do. But some people insisted in doing it. We have told them very clearly at the very beginning that this is the right thing to do. We will not participate in such a ruling. So it's not based on very solid legal ground. But at the same time, we have a very strong position on our sovereignty, on the territorial claim in the region. And our claims have very strong historic and legal foundation. But still, we want to solve all the disputes with other countries, with other claimant countries, through diplomatic negotiations. You see, I myself, some years ago, took part in the work on the declaration of conduct between China and the ASEAN countries. Now we are working on the code of conduct, and we are making good progress. Actually, without outside interference, the situation in the region was cooling down, 
was quite stable. But unfortunately, countries like the US, particularly the United States, is trying very hard to intervene to send their military, to strengthen their military presence in the region. The intensity and frequency is so high. But ironically, United States is not yet a contracting party to the Convention on the Law of the Sea. I don't know how many people is aware of this. Let me, let me ask you about Hong Kong. Um, the Chinese government uh, has essentially imposed mainland law on Hong Kong with the national security law. And the concern that I've heard from many Western businessmen is that um, they are worried that if they were to go to Hong Kong, they could be picked up under this law by the Chinese government by, and, and held in very much the way that two Canadians uh, have been picked up and are being held hostage. Will the Chinese government, will Beijing use this law to arrest uh, people it regards as having defamed China, which is what the law allows it to do, uh, if they are in Hong Kong? You see, Farid, let me say this to you. Our guiding policy for the government of Hong Kong is still one country, two system. This has not changed. This will not change in the future. Hong Kong is now part of China. We have to defend our own country's unity, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. This is what meant by one country. And within the framework of one country, on the basis of secure and stable one country, two systems can prosper in parallel, can prosper together. That's what is meant by one country, two system. And the new law is intended just for that purpose, to maintain and safeguard one country, two system, to make Hong Kong more stable, more secure for everybody, for the Hong Kong residents, and as well as for foreign investors. People could have a more predictable, safer environment to do their business in Hong Kong. That's the real purpose of this law. And according to the basic law of Hong Kong, some of the national laws do apply to Hong Kong when they are concerned with national sovereignty and territorial integrity, unity of the country. They have to apply. Otherwise, there's no one country. But if people try to undermine or even destroy this very basis of one country, then there's no place for the two systems to operate. So if people try to undermine one country, they are actually undermining the two systems as well. Let me ask you about, about the situation in Xinjiang with the, with the Uyghurs. You know that Senator Elizabeth Warren has said that based on the reports uh, that, that have come, credible reports, that China is engaging in essentially forced population control including sterilization and, and abortions, um, that this, China's actions in Xinjiang constitute uh, the legal definition of genocide. How do you respond to that? I think it's very fortunate. People are basing their perceptions or judgment on reports of questionable sources. I could give you a real number. The population, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, 
has more than doubled in the last 40 years. So the growth is much bigger than the population growth all over the country, and much bigger than the growth of the population of the Han ethnic group. So I don't know how people get all these wrong numbers. The real number is the population has more than doubled in the so last you, 40 years. Do you, do you categorically deny that there have been any mechanisms such as sterilization, any attempts at forced population control of the Uyghurs? I don't know how absurd all these fabrications can go. But that means you deny it. Of course. That was the Chinese ambassador to Washington, Sui Tiankai. We appreciate his time. To see more of this important interview on China's COVID response and on its view of Donald Trump, go to CNN.com slash Fareed. Coming up next, how these relations look to the former Deputy Secretary of the United States, Tony Blinken. Let's keep the conversation on China going. Joining me now is Anthony Blinken. Blinken was both the Deputy Secretary of State and the Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. He is now a senior foreign policy advisor to Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Um, Tony, let me start by asking you, what do you make of Donald Trump's rhetoric about China? Is this politics or is there a substantive issue here um, that required the ramping up of that rhetoric? Reed, it's great to be with you. And I would say right now it is, it is certainly rhetoric and politics and not more. But take this to 60,000 feet. And I just listened to Ambassador Sway as well. You know, we're engaged in a serious competition with China. Competition can be a good thing, but we want to make it a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. And that's a race we'll win if we start from a position of strength. But here's the problem. Right now, by virtually every key metric, China's strategic position is stronger and ours is weaker as a result of President Trump's leadership. Uh, think about this. President Trump has helped China advance key strategic goals, uh, weakening our alliances, check, leaving a vacuum in the world for China to fill, check, abandoning our values and giving Beijing a green light to trample human rights and democracy in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, check, and maybe Fareed, worst of all, debasing our own democracy by attacking its institutions, its people, its values, every single day. And so reducing our appeal, and that's checkmate. So the way I'm thinking about this, and the way we're thinking about it is this. At its core, uh, the China challenge, and there is one, and it's real, but that challenge is as much about us as it is about them. It's about the competitiveness of our economy and our workers. It's about our own democracy and political system. It's about our alliances and partnerships, all of which, unfortunately, President Trump has done so much to undermine. But all of that's fully within our control. So if we invest in ourselves, if we renew our democracy, if we work with our partners, uh, then we can engage China from a position of strength and we'll do just fine. So how would you handle um, something like the, the issue of the WHO? The argument being that China deceived the WHO, the WHO didn't push back, and we need to in some way have a reckoning. The Trump administration, of course, has withdrawn from the WHO, presumably to put pressure on it. Well, as you know, Fareed, the story doesn't start there. The story starts with previous administrations, especially the Obama-Biden administration, that saw pandemics as a growing threat and put in place programs and people to prevent, to detect, to deal with them, including in China. 
We had a strong CDC presence. We had a dedicated White House office within the National Security Council, a program literally called PREDICT to detect the emergence of pandemics. When President Trump came in, he dismantled or defunded virtually all of that. And then when the virus struck and the Chinese government, unfortunately, was withholding critical information, uh, denying access to American and international experts, President Trump repeatedly praised their transparency and cooperation instead of insisting that they live up to their responsibilities. Now, walking away from the WHO in the midst of a pandemic, instead of working within it to reform it, that just cedes our leadership to China. It's a big mistake. How would you deal with the South China Seas? Because I think Ambassador Sui made a very reasonable point, which is that the United States is accusing China of violating international law on the basis of this uh, law of the seas treaty. But the United States is not itself a party to it. It is not a signatory to it. I've had these conversations with Ambassador Sui and other Chinese officials in the, in the past. And yeah, I noted the irony uh, that we were not a party to the uh, law of the sea, yet we were insisting on its application. China is a party, but it's ignoring uh, its application and its rules. So we need to get back uh, to actually following rules. I'd like to see us be part of the law of the sea treaty. Our military has repeatedly come out uh, advocating it uh, uh, to Congress. But the other thing is, when you're faced with a situation like this, you have to, in a matter-of-fact way, uh, project uh, strength and uh, resoluteness. I'll give you an example. Uh, some years ago, during the uh, Obama-Biden administration, uh, the Chinese government declared a so-called air defense identification zone in its interna in international skies uh, near China, saying any aircraft that came in to this area had to identify itself. Then Vice President Biden went to um, uh, Xi Jinping and very matter-of-factly, without publicly putting him in a corner, said, uh, we're not going to uh, uh, respect the air de defense identification zone. We're going to ignore it. We're going to fly our planes through it. And that's exactly what we did. Let me ask you finally, Tony, the, the, the difficult issue of the Uyghurs. This is obviously happening within China, and yet it seems a matter of deep concern to anybody concerned about human rights. What can the United States do about something uh, like this? Well, look, we, we have to start free by putting values uh, back at the center uh, of our foreign policy and stand up for democracy and human rights. It starts there. When the president of the United States, as has been reported, gives a green light for concentration camps with the Uyghurs in a conversation with Xi Jinping, or when protests start against the repressive hand of the Beijing government in Hong Kong, and the president of the United States says that he stands with Xi Jinping, not with the protesters, we have a fundamental problem. Unless and until we correct that problem, it's going to be hard to get anywhere. Tony Blinken, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be with you, Fareed. Next on GPS, it's the most compelling international mystery in some time. Who or what is behind a series of explosions, fires and accidents in Iran? We'll explore when we come back. In the early hours of July 2nd, an apparent explosion caused significant damage at a key building at the Natanz nuclear plant in Iran. Just a week earlier, a major explosion hit the outskirts of Tehran, where a missile production facility is located. Then this past Wednesday, a fire blazed through Iran's key port of Bushehr on the Persian Gulf, setting multiple ships aflame. And these are just three of a string of fires, explosions and unexplained incidents in Iran this past few weeks. Here to explain, hopefully, is Dalia Dasake. She is the director for the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the Rand Corporation and has published a piece in The Washington Post about this mystery. So, Dalia, um, at the very simplest level, 
who is behind all this stuff? Well, the short answer is obviously we don't know, uh, but given the uh, targets that you just noted, the nuclear uh, facilities that are quite sensitive, the missile uh, production facility, uh, a lot of, I think, analysis are suggesting that the Israelis are likely implicated in at least some of these explosions. Uh, the Israelis have not been shy about their uh, concern about Iran resuming its nuclear activities. In recent years, it's been particularly worried about Iran's missile production, especially uh, 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 precision-guided missiles, uh, and, uh, and Israel has a record of targeting uh, nuclear facilities in the region of adversarial states, and specifically has been reported to be involved in cyber attacks and other covert activities in Iran itself. So I don't think um, this is completely out of context, or it, you know, it certainly fits a pattern that we've seen in the past, and most critically, uh, it's coming in the context of rising U.S.-Iran escalation. And there are many, I think, who think the timing, the Israelis might look at this timing as particularly good. They have a pretty permissive uh, administration in Washington right now for these kinds of attacks. So uh, we don't know, but I think there are a lot of signals pointing to the Israelis having some involvement in this. Explain uh, the importance of Natanz and, and what happened there. Well, Natanz is particularly important because that's uh, a facility that produces advanced uh, centrifuges, which is, without getting into all the technical details of how Iran could produce uh, eventually a nuclear weapon, uh, that this is a site that's been attacked in the past because uh, if Iran advances its centrifuge production to a certain level, the concern is it would be able to take its civilian nuclear program and weaponize it. And this is actually what the Iran nuclear agreement back in two th 2015 was about. It was about ensuring that Iran would be prevented from being able to weaponize its civilian nuclear program. And since the American withdrawal from the nuclear deal in 2018, uh, this is when we've seen the Iranians begin to violate a lot of the restrictions that were in the agreement. They're not sprinting to a bomb by any means. They took very measured actions. Uh, but this facility is a, is a target. Uh, it's been a target in the past because it would allow Iran to advance its centrifuge production to worrying levels in terms of the breakout time to be able to weaponize its program. So it's not a, um, I think it's, it's, pretty, it's a site that would be expected to be targeted if Israel or others are behind and would like to see a setback in the Iranian nuclear program. So when I look at this, it strikes me that we're sort of back, we've almost gone back 10 years because, as you say, the, the Iran nuclear deal was meant to prevent all this. The Iranians were adhering to it. Um, we are now back to the point 10 years ago where they were uh, building up nuclear capacity that could be weaponized. The Israelis or the Americans engaged in a massive cyber attack uh, on, on Iran centrifuges in Natanz. Um, and here we are doing it again. So, I mean, are we just back to where we were 10 years ago? Well, I don't want to be that alarmist yet. We're certainly, we are going backwards. We're not quite where we were 10 years ago. Uh, thankfully, the Iran nuclear agreement is still hanging by a thread. There are nuclear inspectors still in Iran. Uh, they're getting challenged more frequently now, but they're still there. Uh, we don't have enrichment levels. Uh, 
uh, and capacity for Iran to be able to break out within weeks, which was what kind of the concern by some accounts were before the nuclear agreement was negotiated. So we're not quite there yet, but we're certainly at a dangerous moment. And I think what's particularly different now is the context. Like, I, as I said, it's not just concern that the Israelis, and, and there frankly are reports that the United States and the Israelis may even be coordinating uh, these covert attacks in Iran itself. Uh, under the cover of the uh, Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign. So what's a little different is it's not just a kind of a, a targeting, tactical targeting of nuclear sites and other military sites in Iran to kind of set back programs that are warring to its neighbors for good reasons. Uh, the difference now is that there's a lot of confusion about what the ultimate aims of maximum pressure are. And I think there's some perception uh, in Iran and, and uh, abroad, that these activities may be aimed at going beyond just degrading Iranian nuclear or other military uh, capabilities to actually destabilizing the country itself. And given the tempo of these attacks uh, over the course of a few weeks, as well as the broader escalation we've seen, especially in the past year with Iran starting to lash out, attacking oil tankers, attacking the U.S. drone, culminating in the U.S. attack against General Soleimani in January, which led to direct U.S.-Iranian con uh, conflict, uh, a missile attack against American bases in Iraq. This is, you know, now moving from a shadow war into a direct war. Uh, this is a, a escalation we have not seen. This is no longer just about the nuclear program. This is becoming a broader question about what are U.S. objectives when it comes to Iran. And Dalia, we don't have a, lo a lot of time, but would you say when you look at the Israeli behavior here, is there something going on here where they feel like they have this last window of opportunity because Donald Trump is president and will support any move taken by them? Well, as I said, they certainly have what they perceive as a green light from Washington. If the reports are correct, they have may have more than that, where it might be actually a coordinated campaign. So I think, you know, there's a lot of merit to that argument. I think the Israelis, as well as the Americans, also do see Iran as incredibly vulnerable right now. Uh, the sanctions have really taken a toll. The pandemic... Uh, unrest within the country, societal protests ongoing. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, the Israelis may very well think this is a window, uh, an opportune time to act and degrade Iran's I, capabilities. I, I gotta, again, I gotta, this could escalate. I, I got I to cut you off there. We are out of time. Dahlia, okay. that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, Bernard-Henri Levy. The coronavirus has taken a terrible toll on this planet. We'll see it surpass 15 million cases. We've already lost about 600,000 lives. For decades, if not centuries, historians will be writing about the effects of this pandemic, other than illness and death, the good, the bad, the ugly. The French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy has been thinking all about this in real time. He has a new book coming out called The Virus in the Age of Madness, and he joins me now. Bernard, welcome. First, explain why you call this an age of madness. Because we are living in an age of madness. You have some people, like Alas, the president of the United States, who act in a completely mad way by denying the reality. Trump refuses to wear a mask, but he puts a mask on reality. He masks the real state of the country. On the other side, you have some people who overreact and who are ready 
to completely renounce their civil rights, civil liberties, if they can exchange them against a guarantee of safety, which is also mad. So I have the feeling that we are surrounded in this coronavirus affair by a competition of madnesses. Do you agree with uh, the Irish columnist Fintan O'Toole, who said, uh, you know, the world has had many reactions to America over the decades, uh, anger, fear, but we are now seeing a new one, which is pity. The world is pitying America. The world is expecting now nothing from America. This is the most sad situation ever. Uh, the rest of the world expects nearly nothing. We are back, and this is one of the, the things which appeared with this pandemic. We are back to a sort of a world, sort of pre-Christopher Columbus. We are in a world where it is as if America did not exist any longer. This is so weird. When you see the world from Europe, or again from India, or again from uh, Hong Kong, or from uh, Ukraine, where I was recently also, or from, from Kurdistan, you have the impression that America withdrew so much that she is no longer an actor anymore. And the result is that those bad guys, those human rights offenders who are Putin, Xi Jinping, Iranian leadership, and, uh, uh, and ISIS and others move forward. Where are they moving forward more and more? And they did take advantage of the pandemic to move on and on. And personally, uh, when you look at it, Bernard, as, a, as a, somebody who's taught a lot about philosophy and moral philosophy, has this pandemic brought out the best in human beings, the worst in human beings? Has it made us more selfish, more aware of the plight of others? How do you see it? Alas, uh, I, I would say that uh, selfishness has increased. It is evident for those who deny the pandemic, they don't care about the deaths, which is the the biggest uh, um, selfishness possible. They don't care. Uh, uh, production has to continue and uh, good, and they send the dead to, to, to hell. But on the other side, uh, I see um, in, the, in these safe bubbles, which uh, are um, uh, built here and there, where the biggest concern is not to be offended by the opinion of the other. There is a sort of new blindness and new deafness which rises and which cuts us for the rest of the, from the rest of the world. And I see in America, like in Europe, or in Europe, like in America, as in America, so many people who took advantage of the pandemic to really get rid of the world. Um, this is also what is happening today if we don't care. We, we, the confinement was inevitable. We were right to be confined, but we really have to be anxious and eager to step out of that and to go back to the world and to care again about our 
brothers in humanity who have nothing, who have no house to shelter inside, and even in America who have no uh, access to healthcare, and so on. So confinement is necessary, but cannot be the last word of ethics and humanity. If not, we will live in a world of generalized selfishness. Bernard-Henri Levy, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Farid. Thanks a lot. Next on GPS, I'll bring you a preview of my new special, Donald Trump's Conspiracy Theories, which will air here on CNN at 9 p.m. on Monday night. President Trump has loved conspiracy theories since long before he was president. He was, after all, one of the key proponents of the theory that his predecessor, Barack Obama, was actually born in Kenya. He's also used conspiracy theories to discount election results in 2012 and 2016, leading many people to wonder what we can expect from the White House and its allies this November. It's going to be fraud all over the place. Here is a preview of my latest special called Donald Trump's Conspiracy Theories. You can catch it Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on CNN and CNN International. All right. Tell me when you're ready. A few days after the 2016 election. Well, I just had uh, the opportunity to have an excellent conversation with President-elect Trump. An obscure right-wing operative named Greg Phillips tweeted a bombshell. Number of non-citizen votes exceeds 3 million. Can you prove right now that 3 million people voted illegally? Yes. But Phillips, a voter fraud watchdog, was cagey about showing any evidence. Do you have the proof? Yes. Will you provide it? Yes. Can I have it? No. Why? We're going to release everything to the public. When? Um, as soon as we get done with the checks. The Wait, challenge. hold on. So, so you're not done checking it yet? Questions about a possible recount. In fact, when Phillips made his outrageous claim... Recount votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. States had not even certified their election results. We're not going to make a mistake. But that's we're going to do you. this. We're doing it. But you already accused them. Look, I'm not a politician. I'm just a guy. Millions of dead people voting. Millions of illegals voting. Then Alex Jones, the notorious conspiracy theorist who said the U.S. government staged 9-11, picked up the story. Donald J. Trump didn't just win the Electoral College, he also clearly won the popular vote. And after that story ran, President-elect Trump tweeted for the first time that he won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Greg Phillips still won't show us any evidence. Illegal immigrants voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. Just like that. We don't want non-citizen voters. A voter fraud conspiracy theory was born. Voter fraud, voter fraud. Here's the evidence. It's a lie. Trump has made an astounding number of completely unsubstantiated voter fraud claims over the years. Again, don't miss my new special, Donald Trump's Conspiracy Theories, Monday night at 9 p.m. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.